than I deserve, I'm sure. It is, uh, it is so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, man, this is such a, a, a treat to be able to, to gather together as the church. I think a lot of times uh, maybe we misplace, not misplace, but maybe we overemphasize visitors. And if you're visiting today, don't, don't misunderstand. We are delighted that you're here with us. Um, it is a joy that you've come, come and we're, we're so glad. I, I'm not Pastor Jason, by the way. Um, so if, if the sermon is terrible, I remember my first time here, Pastor Jason didn't preach. And I was kind of like, I'm not really digging this Pastor Jason guy. So I'm not Pastor Jason. So if it's terrible, don't slam the door. Come back next week and it might be much better. Um, so I, I'm not Pastor Jason. He is on vacation this week. Um, I am a deacon here at Emmanuel, and, uh, and so if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. If you're not visiting with us, we're just as delighted that you're here. Um, I think that sometimes we take that for granted, just the opportunity to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and just to be able to share in this fellowship uh, that Jesus has, has brought us together as family. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 13. We're going to be at Matthew chapter number 13 this morning. I want to open up with a question, and it's a rhetorical one, so you don't have to answer. I was just wondering if you've ever wanted something, right? Nobody, no, that doesn't apply to anybody. Nobody here has wanted something. And when I say want something, we, we have menial wants all the time. I mean, we might, my kids, if you have kids, you get inundated with wants, especially right before bedtime, right? I, I want water. I want five more minutes. My, my daughter, Alay, it's always two more minutes. I don't know why. Two is very significant in a three-year-old's life for some reason. So I think because they only know one, two, and now I'm three. So two more minutes of this, two more minutes of that. But I'm not talking about menial wants. They're all things that we want. But have you ever desperately wanted something? Like wanted something with all of your being to where you'll go to whatever extreme in order to get it. So a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago, I, I always say that, a couple of weeks ago, five minutes ago, but this was actually last spring. Uh, my mom and dad called me. It was a Saturday night. And so my wife and I, if you don't know some of the context, we've been living um, in my parents' basement for like five years, no lie. Um, it, it's been, the, God has brought us through that is an absolute miracle. Uh, so we've been hanging out there, paying down debt, um, waiting for God to, to provide a house for us. And, uh, and so last spring, my mom and dad called and they said, we, we've found the deal of the century for you. Is you're not going to believe this. And this lady was on Facebook, and, and we think that she meant to private message somebody, and she accidentally, like, blasted everyone. You ever do that at work, where you just CC, like, the whole company? And, uh, and she has a parcel of land in Bridgeport. It's about two acres, and she wants to sell it, and she wants to sell it for about $15,000, which if you're looking for land in Bridgeport, that's an absolute bargain. I mean, that isn't—you don't find land anywhere for that amount of money. And so they, they told me, so the very next day was Sunday after church. We go out, we look at this land. Uh, we had no intentions of living in Bridgeport. We didn't have any intentions of building a house. Um, if anything, that was going to be more difficult, waiting another year to get in somewhere. Um, but, I mean, how do you pass that bargain up? So we, that next Sunday, we go, we drive out. I was out Brushy Fork, and we take a look at this most beautiful piece of property. And let me tell you, every piece of property looks amazing when you're living with your parents in their basement. 
I have not found a single piece of property that is, as long as there is separation, it is beautiful and it is valuable. And we looked at this property. There's just one eeny, teeny, tiny problem. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have $15,000 laying around. Um, we were in, in working the Dave Ramsey debt plan, you know, paying off debt like with gazelle-like intensity. And uh, we didn't have a dime to our name. So what do you do? Well, you start, first off, you start looking at the usual suspects. Couch cushions, <laughs> like maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, tearing holes in walls, trying to see if maybe somebody left $15,000 somewhere for you. And then you graduate to family. Like, I mean, once you've exhausted your resources, you turn to mom and dad. And you're like, mom and dad, I know you really want us out of your basement. So do you guys have $15,000 we could borrow? I don't know about your parents, but the only thing that runs in my family is diabetes, heart disease, and poverty. <laughs> so family, family was out of the equation. So then you start to get frantic. And you're like, oh my gosh, somebody's going to buy this property before we find it can. And we're trying to pull the capital together to buy it. And, and so I go to my boss because I mean, I've exhausted family, exhausted the couch cushion. So I sit down with him and my boss loves me and he has to love me to continue to employ me. Um, but I sit down and I'm telling him about this opportunity for us. He's really excited. And I said, there's just one problem. I don't have $15,000. And so we brainstorm, and we think about all these different ways that maybe we could come up with it. And so, no lie, I, in hindsight, when you're desperate, things sound really dumb, don't they? So I remember driving with me, and I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask Jim for a paycheck advance. Now, just so we're clear, $15,000 is not like a week's paycheck for me. <laughs> So I sit down and I asked my boss, I'm like, I need to get out of my parents' basement. You've been traveling this road with me for years. And so I, I know this sounds crazy, but could you maybe possibly go to the board and see if I could get a paycheck advance for like $15,000? He's like, you do realize that that's like half a year's worth of your salary. Like, I don't think we can give you a paycheck advance for half a year. But he was ready to do it. He was going to do it. And so he went to the board, and there wasn't really anything they'd do. And so then you get to this, I, maybe you guys don't get to this stage, but I tend to get to this stage a lot where I really want something. I'm desperate for it. I'm pursuing it. And it's called the failure stage, right? Where you just start giving up your dreams. Your dreams die. I'm going to live in my mom and dad's basement for the rest of my life. So in church, one Sunday, and I get this last ditch idea. And so my very best friend, Jeremy, who was not my best friend at the time, I did not really know Jeremy. I knew that he was a deacon in our church. I knew from all accounts for everything I heard, he was a very upstanding man. And so I grabbed him after church one day, and I also heard that he happened to be a banker. I didn't know what he did in the bank. I might have been a teller for all I knew. And so I grabbed him, and I said, buddy, I, I don't know what you do in banking, but here's my situation. There's this piece of land that I desperately need. I think God has, has made it the opportunity possible for me to have it. Um, I just don't have $15,000, and and." I don't know. I've tried everything that I can think of. Is there, will you sit down with me and maybe look at how I might be able to come up with the capital to make this purchase? So little did I know that Jeremy was not a teller 
but the president of the bank. So God humbled me once again in this pursuit. And uh, so we were able to, thanks to my mom and dad, uh, we were able to uh, buy that piece of land in Bridgeport. And we were able to um, not build a house, but use it to buy our house that we just moved into in Stanley Avenue. So I say that to say this as a means of an introduction that in Matthew chapter number 13, we are going to look at a passage of scripture where a man finds a piece of land and he desperately wants it. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them. We're going to look at Matthew 13, verse number 44. Matthew 13, verse number 44. I chose uh, this morning's passage of scripture for a few reasons. Uh, the, the first reason is that it's short. It's actually the shortest parable in the Bible. So I figured, you know, pa- Pastor Jason's granddad said take a text. He didn't say you had to take a long text. So I, I took the shortest parable in the Bible. I, I feel like it's really hard to, to mess this one up. Um, there's only a, a couple words here, and, and so it is very short. I'm going to follow this up next time with uh, John 11:35. Jesus wept. And, uh, and continue my, my one-hit wonders. So, Matthew 13 and verse number 44. The Bible says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you for this tremendous opportunity to be able to open up your word this morning. I pray that as we get into weightier, heavier things, God, that your Holy Spirit would give us the capacity to deal adequately with those. God, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are gracious to us, that you're slow to anger. God, I pray in these coming moments that you will calm my nerves, give me clarity of thought, that God, ultimately, you will put me in the background and that your word would shine forth. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would take these words this morning and he would engraft them into our hearts. I pray, God, that we would leave changed people for your honor and your glory. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' holy name. Amen. So all jokes aside, the, the second reason that I picked this verse is it has tremendous significance in my life. For those of you that know me, you know that I was a pastor for many years. Um, I pastored for about 10 years in Grafton, two different pastorates. Uh, the first one, I was 18 years old when I started filling the pulpit there, 19 when I accepted the pastorate. And so I was a relatively young man, very young, and uh, very inexperienced. As I, was, as I was there, I was still very much wrestling with the scriptures and, and learning and uh, developing my theology and, and what I knew to be true about God. And I was also developing my style and philosophy of ministry. And one of the things that I've found to be true about young men is they have a tendency to be very overzealous. If you've met any young 18, 19-year-old guys, they can get a little heavy-handed. And that's exactly how I was at my first ministry. I was very heavy-handed. 
And this verse came along in the ministry of Pastor John Piper, and it helped me tremendously to understand how what that seeming dichotomy between selling everything and then having joy, how those things kind of relate. And so that's what I want to talk to you uh, today about, is that how those things come together in our lives. And so in Matthew chapter number 13, this guy goes to buy a field, and the first thing we'll note is there are two parables. There's the parable of the hidden treasure. There's the parable of the pearl of great value. Uh, both of them involve the search for something valuable. Both include someone who wants something. The first guy in the first parable is a man of no means, so he's something that is rather familiar to those of us who are here today. He doesn't have great wealth. He doesn't know what wealth necessarily looks like. And it says that he goes and he finds treasure hidden in a field. Now, we don't know why he's in the field. This is a parable, and just so we're clear, parables are not necessarily case studies. They're not to be overanalyzed. Uh, be some things in this parable that maybe we consider to be not ethically on the up and up, right? So the guy finds treasure hidden in a field. We don't know why he's in the field. Um, it could be that he works in that field. He may be tending the vineyards in that field. He may be a neighbor. Um, he may be burying a dead body. We, we have absolutely no idea why he's in this field. But we do know that while he's in this field, he stumbles upon treasure. Now, this was not an anomaly in that time. Uh, hidden treasure was not, this was not unusual. Um, it was actually somewhat commonplace to stumble upon treasure. Uh, money then was not a commodity like it is now. Money was not something to be invested. It was not something to use for a return. Money was actually more of a tool, a medium of exchange. And so it was not uncommon at all for folks to take their money, to bury it, to keep it somewhere and preserve it so that when the time came to exchange, they would know where it was and could use it. As we all know, life happens with money, right? And so you have good intentions of burying it, holding on to it and using it later only for an army to come sweeping in and for you to die in war, and then the treasure remains buried. And there's any number of things that could have happened to this man. He may have uh, fallen sick or ill and passed away, but regardless, there's this treasure that is lying in his field, and this man stumbles on it. Now, that's a pretty good day, right? I mean, I, I feel pretty blessed when I reach in my pocket and there's a dollar. So he is elated at this discovery. And so it says there's just one teeny tiny problem. He has the same problem that I had in my pursuit of land, and that is he's broke. He doesn't have any money, any capital to purchase it. So it says that the man liquidates everything that he owns. And you've seen this. Like, if you go on Facebook Marketplace, it used to be your bulletin board. My granddad always read the bulletin board. You'll find people in our society constantly liquidating capital to get what they want. Uh, so we are constantly searching the Facebook Marketplace and, and, and whatever else we can to get these good deals. And so this guy probably put up everything that he owned in order to buy this land. In one sense, you could say that this man became completely impoverished in order to purchase this field. Now, the second parable is the parable of the pearl of great value. Now, this man is different from the man in the first parable because this is a man of means and a man who knows the value of pearls specifically. 
Now, pearls in the ancient world were more valuable than they are today because they did not have the technological advancements that we have to make it easier to secure them. So today we can put on our wetsuits and we can get our scuba gear on and we can go dive after pearls. It's, it's not nearly as difficult as it was then. Uh, back then, pearls were extraordinarily difficult to come by. And so those who had pearls were of the richest and the most elite in the culture. And it was even said that almost half of Cleopatra's wealth existed in the form of pearls. And so that was more of a commodity and one that you would save and that would possibly grow in value and that you could get a return on. In both of these parables, we have three things that happen, three things that we want to look at today. The first one involves an epiphany. Both men know something that somebody else does not. They are privy to secret information. They've had an epiphany, a revelation, information that has come into their life that has totally changed their trajectory. The second thing we're to look at is that in both instances, the person who has this knowledge is forced to make a decision to sell everything that they have in order to secure the thing that they want. And the third thing that we'll note is that in both parables, they sell everything they have enthusiastically and with great joy. The first thing that we'll look at is the epiphany. And the epiphany correlates well. As we said, parables are are stories that are told with a point. And in Matthew chapter number 13, we actually have a number of parables, and all of them are about the kingdom of heaven. And when you see the kingdom of heaven, it's important to know that that's synonymous with the kingdom of God. Matthew was written mainly to a Jewish readership. And so because he was writing to Jews, Jews were oftentimes hesitant to bring up the name of God. And so oftentimes it was not uncommon at all to substitute the name of God for something so that everybody knew what you were talking about, but you didn't run the risk of using the Lord's name in vain. And so whereas you see in other parables the kingdom of God, Matthew pretty much exclusively uses the kingdom of heaven, and this is just him being sensitive to his Jewish audience. And so in Matthew chapter number 13, we have a number of parables that talk about this kingdom of heaven that are stories with a point, a rather sharp point, that help us to understand the kingdom. I like what Jared Wilson says about parables. Probably your only time encountering parables may have been in Sunday school with flannel graph. And he says, please do not misunderstand. Flannel graph is soft and flat, and the parables of Jesus are none of that. And so we see that time and time again. These parables are oftentimes very cutting and oftentimes deal with very difficult things. And we sometimes even see disciples leaving and fleeing Jesus as a result of what he has said in a parable. So Matthew 13, we have several. And the theme throughout is that the kingdom of heaven is hidden. I want you to think about that for a minute. The kingdom of heaven is hidden. 
some of the parables above, the mustard seed and the leaven specifically, talk about the kingdom in such ways that it is like a mustard seed or an acorn that gets smashed, and when it's broken open and it begins to germinate, it grows into a massive tree with roots that could shake the foundation of a building and branches that birds can even flock to. Leaven is another parable and it says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened and so we see that the kingdom is oftentimes spoken in obscure ways and that is because the kingdom is hidden and i would i would posit this morning that there is a an intentionality behind that there's a reason that the kingdom of heaven is hidden the kingdom is not flashy it's not political it doesn't involve armies or palaces. And the reason for that is because if it was flashy, if it were beautiful, if it was extraordinary, then men might be lured to it in order that they themselves might be made beautiful like it. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked in the book of Acts. So if you, you can turn there with me. I want to show you this. Acts chapter number 8. There's a reason... The kingdom was hidden. Matthew, or Acts chapter number 8. You'll remember this fella. Not a very good dude at all. Acts chapter number 8. Remember Simon the magician? So Simon... He, he sees the attractiveness of this power of the gospel. And so he tells Peter, what's he say? He says, I want it. How much does it cost? Give it to me. Right? Even Simon himself believed. And now when it says in verse number 14, I'm sorry. Let's see. In verse number 19, Simon says, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So Matthew 13 tells us the kingdom of God is oftentimes hidden. It's something that a lot of people don't see its value. Um, it's something that is cloaked, something that is disguised. And Simon here sees the value of it. He sees the power and immediately he wants it. But he doesn't want it because he's pure in heart. He wants it to consume it upon his own greed and his own lust. And he wants to become powerful. And so oftentimes we see that the gospel is hidden and it is hidden for a reason, so that we might not consume it upon our lusts. I think we see this today where people manipulate and use the gospel. God is not a means to an end. God is the end. Right? We don't use God to get what we ultimately want. 
We see this in the prosperity gospel, in your best life now. There are preachers all the time who really, the Bible says that there will come a time where people have itching ears, and so they come to church, and what they really want is not God. They want something else, or something, or money, or wealth, or a a nice-looking body, whatever it is, whatever their heart desires. And so these preachers with itching ears come, and they pander to these lusts, and they present a gospel that sells out God and uses God for their own lust and their own desires. And so oftentimes in Jesus's ministry, the kingdom was obscured, it was hidden. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus himself was obscured. Look with me. Quickly to Isaiah 53 and verse number 2. Isaiah 53, verse number 2. So not only is the kingdom obscure, but the king himself is oftentimes hidden and not immediately recognizable. So in Jesus, Isaiah 53, 2 says that, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And so Jesus himself was oftentimes somebody that when you looked at him, you would not think that he was a very valuable person his deity was masked by his humanity and so that when you looked upon him the bible says there was nothing special about him nothing that stood out about him he wasn't particularly attractive Uh, he never won an election never ran for office he he never really had any kind of achievement or accomplishment uh, here on this earth and so when you look at jesus himself oftentimes jesus was not what we would think of as somebody who would be representative of this great king and this movement and this kingdom of god and so as the kingdom of heaven is obscured so oftentimes just like many people who had passed by that field the treasure goes unrecognized And so I think we would see that today in our communities. As we look around, there are multitudes, maybe friends and family, who do not see or savor Jesus as valuable or as the treasure that he is. And so these guys, in our parable in Matthew chapter number 13, they see the treasure, they have unique knowledge that nobody else is privy to they have an epiphany that this thing is super valuable this treasure that's in a field this pearl that is unlike any other pearl and so now they are confronted with a decision that is to be made if they want that thing then they must sell everything that they have in order to buy it now a couple things remember we said that parables are not case studies, and they're not to be overanalyzed. And so I think there's a tendency here, when we look at Matthew chapter number 13, to think that the kingdom of God is something that can be bought with money. That's what Simon thought, right? Simon said, how much is it going to cost for me to get that kind of power? 
And so we see this, we say, well, this guy is, he's found the treasure, he's had the epiphany, he sees that it's valuable, and so he's going to go after it with everything that he has. He's going to liquidate everything of value that he owns, and he's going to buy it. And so I think we want to make that connection that, oh, well, then to become a Christian, to get the kingdom, one must make a tremendous sacrifice, an investment, and they can, by their own meritorious efforts, secure it. And that is not true. That is not what we're saying. When you are reading a parable, you have to take it within the context of the entire Bible. So you can't just take, lift that verse out and say, oh, well, just like the guy bought the, the treasure, the field that had the treasure. So we must do something in order to earn the kingdom of God. That is not true. While the kingdom of God cannot be merited in that way, it is true that the kingdom of God must be received in that manner. Now I want you to get that difference because there is a difference there. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to earn God's love, to earn the kingdom of heaven. It is something that has been totally provided for you. Tim Keller uses another parable to make this point. I think it's really good. It's the parable of the prodigal son. You guys remember that story where the prodigal son basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead now so I could get my inheritance and leave this place and and sow some wild oats and do my own thing. And I just want to get as far away from you as I can. And dad says, look, don't wait for me to, to kick the bucket. There's your inheritance. Go. And so he lives uh, this lifestyle of debauchery, and then he comes home after so many days of realizing that it was much better, that even his servants in his dad's household had it better than he. And so he comes back, and he falls at the feet of his father, begs him for mercy, and relinquishes everything, left everything in order to come home. And so what does the dad do? The dad gives him the ring and he gives him the coat and he gives him all of this honor, everything that belongs to somebody in his household. But at whose expense does he do that? The older brother, right? The older brother had secured those things. And so when we look at this parable, it's important for us to realize that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There is no way that we can merit it. There is no sacrifice that we can make to make us worthy of receiving the kingdom of God. Rather, the, the kingdom of God has been secured for us by our older brother, by Jesus Christ. Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to have access into the kingdom. By the cross of Jesus, Jesus has finished every requirement. He has died as a substitutionary atonement for our sins in our place so that we could access the kingdom. So don't misunderstand it. Don't make conclusions that are not really there from this parable that to have the kingdom means that we must buy it or that we can in some way, shape, or form earn it because that is heresy. There is nothing that we can do to earn the kingdom. But what is true is that there are things that we should, there is a posture that we should have in receiving the kingdom. There is a direct correlation between how much you think something is worth and what you are willing to give up in order to have it. When the guy stumbles upon, I'm going to hold my phone. I'm not Facebooking, I promise. My notes are, my, I have a printer, and so I'm trying to, to work off of my phone, and it's not cooperating very well, so I'm going to hold it here. But 
there's, there is a direct correlation between how much you think something is worth and what you're willing to give up in order to have it. The guy that went and sold the field or sold all that he had in order to have the field did so because he knew the supreme value of the treasure that was there. When the speculator saw the pearl that was to be had, he had no problem selling all that he had because he understood the value of the pearl. In the same way, there ought to be a posture when we come to Jesus, not that we can earn Jesus' favor, not that we could do anything to merit the kingdom of God, but we ought to think that the kingdom of God is so valuable, so precious, that we have no problem liquidating all in order that we might have it. And the truth of the matter is, when I found that, when my mom and dad told me about that field in Bridgeport, I knew it was valuable, and I went on a mission to secure the capital to buy it. And I just wonder today if I am pursuing Jesus with that same kind of commitment and passion. And the sad reality is, is that when I am not pursuing him, when I am not going hard after Jesus, in turn, what I am saying is, is that my valuation of him is not great. When I can go hard after the wrong things, and when I can let Jesus be, then it says everything about how much I value him. And so I want you to get this point. It is so, this really is the point of the parables, is that they were willing to do anything and everything in order to secure this thing that they deemed most valuable. There are two problems here that I want you to to notice. One is, I think we have a tendency to overvalue our kingdom. And two, we have a tendency to undervalue the kingdom of God. So here's what I mean by that. And this is a little bit of speculation, but if you'll bear with me, so just take this with a, a grain of salt. But in this parable, there was something unique about the land. And so we'd said that, that parables are not like flannel graph. They're not soft and flat. They're usually cutting. And a lot of times they were cutting especially to the Jewish audience in which they were given to. And I don't know if you know anything about the Old Testament, but the land that the Jews had, the promised land, was of great value to them, right? Tremendously valuable. And in that time, really, land itself was valuable. I mean, you could lose just about anything, but you couldn't lose your land. That was something, even if you lost it, it would go on and be passed down through your generations. So land was of extreme value. It was particularly a value, or valuable to the Jews who thought it was, it was the promised land. And so there was some semblance in which the Jews equated having a piece of the promised land with being in the kingdom, Right? And so we see Jesus time and time again fighting against that idea. Paul continues that in his ministry, basically saying it doesn't matter that you are of the seed of Abraham or the lineage of Abraham. Unless you are of the seed of Jesus, you've got no part in the kingdom. But the Jews kind of had that in their mind, that the land was very valuable, that being in the promised land, that being of Jewish lineage was important, and that just being born a Jew was good enough to get us into the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus fought with Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to, to, to have 
part in the kingdom? And Jesus' answer was unique, and it was unique for this reason. He says, unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom. Now, the reason that, I don't know if you know any of the backstory behind this, but, but some Old Testament theologians have suggested that the reason that that was so particularly cutting to, to, um, to uh, shoot, Nicodemus, thank you. Appreciate that, buddy. The reason it was for, t- it's really hot up here. So I may have a heat stroke. The reason that was particularly cutting to Nicodemus was there was kind of a, a common phrase that would be said to the Gentiles. So a Gentile, a proselyte who wanted to become a Jew, would oftentimes ask a Jew what needed to be done in order to become a Jew. And the Jew, being a smart butt, would kind of come back and say, unless you can crawl back in your mom's womb and come out a Jew, sorry, you're out. And so in Jesus, when he tells Nicodemus this, he says, unless you are born again, unless you come out having part in the kingdom of God, then, sorry, Nicodemus, because who you are right now, you're in a separate kingdom. You have no part in the kingdom of God. And so I think when I read this, it's really important for us to note that sometimes we misplace our treasure. Sometimes we overvalue the things in our own kingdom. And so if a Jew may have overvalued his land, and I think for us, there are many of us here today who will go and we will put all of our pursuit and passion and energy and time into getting something of our kingdom that builds our kingdom, whether it's land. And I think a lot of us are pursuing land that has no treasure. We're totally missing it. We're thinking the land is the treasure, and and it's not. I like this story by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talks about when Jesus comes in into our life and he says that Jesus coming to our life is much like a, a king in disguise coming and, and living with you. And the king in disguise, you don't know that he's a king, but he begins to change some things about your, your house, your dwelling place. And so the things that, you know, first he addresses the roof, which you know, that leak has been there for a long time, so that makes sense. And then he fixes some plumbing issues, and, you know, that's needed done for a long time, too. But then things get a little more extravagant. He starts tearing down walls, and he starts building courtyards, and he starts building towers. And, and before long, what, what is going on? What is Jesus doing here? And the reality is, is that Jesus is building on, and he is built because he plans to take up residence there with us. And so I think that it's important for us to see how we can undervalue or overvalue our own kingdom and undervalue Jesus's. The last thing, and this is what really kind of changed my my ministry 
And this is uh, the latter part here in Matthew 13 and verse number 44. So the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I was really good for a long time in ministry at the sacrifice all part of that. So I I would preach time and time again that when Peter came and he saw Jesus for who he was and that he was valuable, he forsook all and followed him. And so I I would time and time again, I I would emphasize that if you're going to have Jesus, then you've got to have all of Jesus. You can't just take him as your savior and not also as your Lord, that you can't be part of the kingdom of God and also still sitting on the throne. And so a lot of my ministry involved that, and that is good and necessary, and that is right, especially in a day and age in which I think a lot of us, many of us, feel as though salvation is just adding on a little bit to the house, right? Just fixing a little bit. We want a little bit of Jesus. We don't want a lot of Jesus. Just a little bit of Jesus. We want Jesus to do the things that we're okay with him doing, but not to touch the things that we want left alone. And so that's kind of the day and age in which we live where we, we, have a, we just want a, a lukewarm salvation. Like the, the different peoples that Paul encountered in his missionary journeys, we, we want to add Jesus to our other idols. We want to keep all of them. And so there is a necessary pushback that needs to happen on that where we continue to say that, that you can't continue to be in the kingdom of darkness and sit on the throne and have Jesus too. You have to leave that kingdom and that Jesus has to take his rightful place as the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. Which means that there ought to be some things that are really uncomfortable for us. And I would say that if you're not doing something that's uncomfortable, if you can read this book and you're not wrestling with something, then who is, who is setting in that throne in your life? Because there are things that I read in here that I struggle with that we have to submit to, that we say, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours. Things that we, because I think what happens oftentimes is that as we read them, if they're things that we don't like, we just choose not to obey them. We're just not going to do that. We'll just forget about it. If you can do that, then that means that you have power, that you're sitting on the throne, that you're able to pick and choose the texts that you like and the ones that you don't. And that means Jesus is not on that throne. But here's what I got wrong. That's all and well. But my people left time and time again, dejected and sad and with weight and heaviness. And I'm not saying there's not a time and place for those things. There, there absolutely is. But that's not what we see in this parable, right? It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in three words, the most important words in this entire message, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field see i had missed that so much in my ministry i was like a taskmaster i was constantly beating my people serve more pray more do more come to church more be at this do that if you love jesus then you need to be at that board meeting 
And I was constantly, and it wasn't that Jesus isn't valuable, and it's not that those things are not needed, but my people had no joy in it. They were dejected, they were tired, they were beat up. And what I didn't understand is that joy comes before sacrifice in this. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. I was telling my people, sell all that you have, but there was no joy, there was no motivator, there was nothing to convince them to do that. And it wasn't until one day I was saying, I was reading a book, and I, I tried really hard this week to find the book, and I couldn't find it. But it helped me understand, and it used this parable. And the missing piece was twofold. One is a pastor. I was not showing people time and time again the beauty of Jesus Christ. I wasn't telling them anything about the treasure. I was telling them all the do's and all the don'ts and the things I needed and, the, and the, you know, all the stuff that they had to liquidate and sell. But I never told them why they were doing that. I was saying, do more. But what I should have been saying is, look at Jesus. Look at what we get. Look at the treasure. And so that in their joy, they would be like, absolutely, I want to sell that stuff. Absolutely, I want to be here. Absolutely, I want to do that. Because Jesus. And I miss that. And there's a sense in which I think we all kind of miss that from time to time. Look at Romans 8, and we'll be done. Romans 8. I got two, two verses I really want to get through. Romans 8, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And this is what this looks like in our life. I think we, we, we really, we, I know I struggle with this. And I, I tell you why, I sometimes just kind of feel out of whack and I feel a little bit out today. Sometimes you're just kind of off. And so I, I really want you to get this. And so I'm just going to kind of hit the reset button. I'm going to pray real quick. We've got like 10 minutes. If you can hang with me 10 minutes, I'll, I'll try to leave everything. You'll just leave. Just I want you thinking about this when you go home. So let's, let's pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll get into this. So if, if nothing else stuck, I want this to stick. God, I thank you that you are in control. I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you that you're on the throne. I thank you that you use us on our, our bad days, our off days. And God, I know your word never returns void. And God, I just pray in these last 10 minutes, if nothing else sticks, I hope this sticks. God, you know, 10 years ago, how much this changed how I thought about you and ministry and every other part of my life. God, I pray that our people would see it today. It's in your name. Amen. In their joy... So how do you do that? What motivates you to sell all that you have? What motivates you to continue to follow Jesus? So Romans 8, the Apostle Paul has just expounded some glorious truths about the gospel. 
and, and it, is, it is good. It is all good. He talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But here it is, and this is what I want you to get. He does something in verse number 18 that I think, I, I, it's not something I do regularly, and I feel like I've gotten out of the habit, and I really need to start. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." the reason they were willing to sacrifice everything was because they understood the value of what they were chasing after. Right now in your life and in my life, there are things that compete for our attention and our time and our energy. There are things that we are valuing above Jesus. There are idols, there are things that we are chasing after. And what we need to do is not, you don't need to hear the sacrifice part right away. But what you need to hear is the treasure of what is going to be revealed in us. See, that's what makes that decision. I mean, could you imagine liquidating everything that you have? Think about that for a minute. Everything. I mean, I don't know if your family is like mine, but everything has sentimental value in my family. Everything. Like that table, and you can think of who was playing there. I mean, these guys liquidated everything to have this because they peered into and looked upon the value of the treasure and the pearl. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 is going through some horrific, really difficult times. And he says, I consider, I reckon, I look, I long, I peer, I am always, ever thinking about how the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So Paul is giving it all. I mean, life, limb. He's he's given up everything to pursue Christ. And the way that he does it is by keeping his eyes constantly fixed on the treasure that is Jesus. And so the last passage I want you to see is in Joshua. It's an interesting place to go, I know. Joshua 7, and we are done. I'm going to show you an example of what this looks like, but the reverse. I'm going to show you what you and I do every day. So in Joshua 7, we have the account of Achan 
And the Lord comes to Joshua. He says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So Israel conquers Ai, or they actually, they lose the battle of Ai rather. And they do so because somebody stole something. And Joshua doesn't know who that is. So he goes on the search. And so he asks, Achan, verse number 19, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And I want you to listen to Achan's description here. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw, that word is so important, It's the same thing that Paul's doing here. When I saw, when I reckoned, when I counted, when I longed, when I looked upon, when my eyes beheld it. It wasn't a a quick thing, right? Look at what he he notices about it. He knows a lot of detail. It, It wasn't just a code. He says, I noticed a beautiful cloak, and he knew where it was from, and 200 shekels of silver. So, I mean, I don't think you just look at a pile of silver and know how much is there, right? He counted it. He longed. He looked upon it. He thought hard and diligently about it. And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. You and I, Day after day, we lust after, we covet, we long for, we look on all kinds of things other than Jesus. And we make all kinds of sacrifices. The reality is you're sacrificing right now for something. And it's whatever you worship. You go hard after it. This week you've gone hard after it. It's whatever that thing is. Just like Achan. But here's how that should work in church. Is that when you come to church, and when you go to Sunday school, and when you go to Awana, and community group, and in your private devotions, and when you pray, and when you eat, and everything that you do, you ought to be coveting Jesus. Right? That was what I was missing in my pastorate was I didn't understand. I thought we just came to sing songs. I thought we just came to preach. But there's a reason behind everything that we do, and that is to get your eyes fixated on the treasure. Because if you see the treasure, everything else is easy. Everything else comes rather haphazard. I mean, you just if you know it's valuable and you've got to have it, we just have to show you the right treasure. And those of us here today, myself included, I'm oftentimes far too easily satisfied. The things I've gone hard after all week are the antithesis of the kingdom of God. We've gone hard after land that has no treasure. We've totally missed Jesus in this. And so everything that we do, whether it's a song that we sing, a word that is preached, or a Sunday school class, everything that happens at Emmanuel ought to be so that you will see and savor and treasure Jesus. And I couldn't understand why my church left day after day dejected and sad and upset because all they got was duty. It's your duty to do this. You ought to do this. 
Why are you doing that? Why are you breaking this commandment? Not that those things don't need to be talked about. But what I've found, and we're going to go into a time of repentance right now, is that while it's necessary that you repent of those things, for me, being a bad husband, not leading my family well, whatever it might be in your life, while those things need to be repented of, the most important thing that needs to be repented of is why am I so underwhelmed at the reckless love of Jesus for me? Right? Why is it, as one pastor said, that when presented with the opportunity to have God, I would choose this? Why is that? And so as I go, I love Awana. I love teaching. I get to teach this year. And, and one of the things that we got to talk about were the attributes of God. And uh, God is good. God is just. God is loving. He's long-suffering. He's kind. He's merciful. He's also all the other things. He can be angry. And he's just. And so if we're not in Christ, then we have a fearful expectation of his justice and his wrath. But when I look at that, there's a story in the Bible of Pharaoh. And it says Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And what did God do to harden Pharaoh's heart against him? He was God, right? He was long-suffering. He sent not one plague. He could have wiped them out. He sent ten, time after time after time, chance after chance after chance. All of God was on display in Egypt. Mercy, grace, love, goodness. And every time God was who God is, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So when I look at my life this week and I say, why am I far from God? Why, why have I chosen this when I could have God? I need to come to church. Don't stay away. I need to open the scriptures. I need to go to Awana. I need to be in community with other believers who can help me and, and help me see the treasure that is Jesus. Don't miss that. They went and they sold all that they had in their joy. You can sell everything, give up everything. And if you gain everything, you lost nothing. Right? And so what I've found to be true about that parable is this. It's not really sacrifice at all. When Peter forsook all and followed... He didn't really give anything up. He gained everything. And so for me, whenever, whatever that is, that thing that I prefer over God, when I give that up, I'm not losing anything. All that is good is in the kingdom of heaven. All that is good. And everything we cling to in this world is not. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So let's pray.